Good morning. This morning we're going to be starting a new series as Pastor John just prayed through the book of Ecclesiastes. You can find this book in the Old Testament, the beginning of what we call the wisdom, or the end of what we call the wisdom literature. So you have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. This book of Ecclesiastes is a strange one. Because it's about why life does not make sense. Normally, we use a phrase like, life doesn't make sense when we're experiencing something tragic or difficult. And that's completely understandable. Some of us are in situations like that right now. We couldn't tell you which way is up and which is down, and we're not even really sure how things ended up this way. But we feel deeply that life does not make sense. But the author of Ecclesiastes wants to make a bigger point than that. See, it's not just when life is going badly that it doesn't make sense, but he wants to confront us with the fact that life doesn't make sense all the time and in all situations. So it doesn't make sense for the rich and successful, It doesn't make sense when everything seems to be sailing along just fine. And that's because death is coming for everyone. Death is coming for the wise and the foolish. It's coming for the wealthy and the poor. It's coming for those who are happy and surrounded with good friends. And it's coming for the lonely. Death is coming for those who are young and those who are old. Death is coming for men just like it comes for animals. The same thing happens to everyone. All of us die. And so what's the point of it all? It doesn't make sense. Now I wonder how that strikes you this morning to hear that this biblical book says life doesn't make sense. Again, if things are hard for you, maybe that really resonates. This is the one thing you really want to say out loud, amen to. We know the world is a mess. But maybe you have a knee-jerk response to hearing that life doesn't make sense and you want to protest. No, that's not right. There's hope. I want to submit that this book tells us that both of you are right. If you're protesting against life doesn't make sense, then that's true. Life has a meaning. But if you feel deeply that life doesn't make sense, then the author of Ecclesiastes wants you to see you're right. He's going to explain why. So this morning, let's start learning from this preacher of Ecclesiastes. Before we read the first three verses, let me just tell you where we're headed this morning. First, I'm going to introduce this book because it has some strange aspects to it that need introduction, like who is this preacher and why does he say that everything is vanity? And then after we introduce the book, we're going to look at the preacher's evidence for why everything is vanity, which is this poem in verses 4 through 11. And then we'll finish by asking, how do we make sense of this senseless world? 
So let's go ahead and read these first three verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Kids, if you've got one of the Bibles we've given you, you can turn to page 553. And we'll start reading there. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? If you know anything at all about this book of the Bible, you likely associate it with King Solomon, David's son. We associate wisdom books with Solomon because we know that God gave Solomon this great gift of wisdom. We can read about that in the book of Kings. The very first verse of this book and many of the details of the first couple of chapters of this book seem to fit very well with Solomon's life. And so that's led many Jewish and Christian interpreters of this book to believe that Solomon is the author and to speak of him as the author. But even so, even with that tradition, you have a parallel tradition that's existed for hundreds of years, maybe even going back a thousand years, of people who have disagreed with the idea that Solomon is the author. So a notable person who didn't believe Solomon wrote this was uh, the great reformer Martin Luther. It's also true that most modern scholars reject the idea that Solomon wrote it. And the truth is, we have no way of knowing who wrote this book. We don't even know when it was written. There's great debate about that as well. Some look at the Hebrew of the book and believe that this represents a, a late form of the Hebrew language, somewhere around the 400s or 300s BC after Israelites returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. There's a further complication in this question of who wrote the book because we see the book itself presents us with two different voices or perspectives. So there's a voice here who introduces the book to us in verses 1 through 11 and also concludes the book for us in chapter 12. He speaks about the preacher in the third person. And so here he introduces us to the words of the preacher. And then beginning in verse 12, we have the voice of the preacher himself speaking in the first person. So just look briefly at verse 12 where he says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. So first we have the preacher introduced and his argument summarized, and then the preacher himself tells us about his search for wisdom. Are these two different authors, or are they the same? You'll find lots of disagreement about that question. It may be frustrating to know or not to know the answers to those questions. Who wrote it? How many people wrote it? When was it written? But I see a benefit in the fact that this book that's about what we don't know requires us to start humbly admitting we don't know a lot about it. The preacher will have a lot to say about the limits of our knowledge throughout this book and even in our text this morning. So the most truthful thing we can say about this book is that it contains the wisdom of a descendant of King David. I think that we can say that with, with certainty right based on the first verse. This son of David, some descendant of David, maybe an immediate descendant like Solomon or one further down the line who ruled in Jerusalem, is offering the wisdom that he's gained. There are things about this book that do fit well in a post-exilic context, 
of Israel. If you know anything about Israel's history, then this time in Israel's history after they returned from exile was, was full of disappointment and uncertainty. Things had not gone the way they had hoped. And so you can imagine this refrain, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. That would have resonated with the people of Israel. They had seemed to fall so far from the glory days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the great empire of David and Solomon. The temple that Solomon built had been destroyed and one lesser had been built in its place. Parts of the land of Israel were never going to be returned to Israel. So what were these people supposed to make of how everything seemed lost? Perhaps it had been vanity and chasing after the wind for them to even try to rebuild Jerusalem. Perhaps it was vanity to believe that the Messiah was coming. And so the preacher's provocation would have put his finger on that sore spot. All is vanity. In just a second, we're going to look a bit more at that word vanity. But before we do, let's just say something about this nickname, the preacher. We get this title from the Hebrew word that if you were to transliterate it into English would look like the word quaholet. This name quaholet comes from a Hebrew word that means assembly. And then if you translate assembly into ancient Greek, you get something like ecclesiastes. So ecclesiastes is a Greek form of the Hebrew word quaholet. Ecclesiastes represents or is related to the word we call church. So you can see why English translators chose this word preacher to translate quaholet. Now, I have a hard time saying quaholet, so I'm just going to call him the preacher because that fits with what the ESV uses. But we should see that as we're calling him the preacher, we're not talking about a preacher like John Piper or John MacArthur or me or John, not that kind of preacher, but an ancient Israelite leader, a, a, way, a wise man or a sage, someone who, who preached or taught to the gathered assembly of God's people, and he transmitted to them the wisdom that he had gathered. So that's who the preacher is. This opening narrator introduces us to this preacher, and he summarizes his teaching for us, and he begins his summary after introducing the preacher with the preacher's tagline, which maybe you could call the subtitle of the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. This idea of vanity is such an important idea in the book that we're going to spend a few minutes meditating on what it might mean. If you're using the ESV, then you see the word vanity here, but if you're using the NIV or the New Living Translation, you would see the word meaningless translated. The Christian Standard Bible and the Net Bible use the word futility. All of these English words are used to translate a Hebrew word that sounds like hebel. I've looked through different commentaries and, and articles, and the, the best explanation I heard of what Hebel means came from a scholar named Grant Ogden, who wrote, I think, in the, in the 60s and 70s. He tried to look through how this word was used in context in the book of Ecclesiastes, in various parts of the book, and here is what he concluded about this word, Hebel. He says, by using the word Hebel, the preacher does not mean to claim that life is empty, vain, and meaningless. His point is simply that life is replete with situations to which even the sage, the philosopher-theologian, has no answer. 
It is the word hebel that the preacher applies to describe these situations. Old Testament commentator Craig Bartholomew agrees. He notes that, literally speaking, the word hebel means something like wind or vapor. This leads him to observe, the preacher will repeatedly associate his hebel refrain with the phrase, striving after the wind. The wind is real enough, but it cannot be grasped. This does not mean that there is no meaning, but if there, if there is, it cannot be grasped. I thus suggest that the core meaning of Hebel is enigmatic. Now this leads Bartholomew to translate verse 2 like this. Utterly enigmatic, says Quaholit. Utterly enigmatic. Everything is enigmatic. Now that doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, right? We can see why no English translations use that word. But I think the idea he describes is a helpful way to understand what the preacher is getting at. Again, we often come up against situations in our lives that we cannot explain. They're mysterious to us. The scriptures often note how the wicked seem to prosper while the righteous suffer. And both end up in the grave. Things don't go the way they should. This fits with what Pastor Dave Gibson said when he preached on these verses. He said this uh, idea of vanity or the enigma shows us that life is short. Life is elusive. It doesn't make sense. Ecclesiastes begins and ends with this claim, everything is utter vanity. Everything doesn't make sense. In the coming weeks, as we study this book, the preacher is going to confront us again and again with the senselessness of life under the sun. And as he does so, we're going to be forced to ask ourselves the question, how should we go on living in the face of life that doesn't make sense? And this is especially the case because we live in a world where there are these competing explanations for how to make sense of your life. Maybe you can make sense of it in your work or your family life, or maybe you can make sense of it by looking inward and defining your own sense of meaning. Can we make sense of our lives that way? The author of Ecclesiastes says no. Now, I don't know a better word to describe this concept than the English word vanity, because none of the others really are much better. So we're going to use that word, but I hope you'll keep in mind the the complicated nature of this vanity, this senselessness as we go. Related to the claim that everything is vain is the question we see in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This is the key question that the preacher asks in the whole book, but also in these first 11 verses. What do we humans get from all of the things that we spend our lives doing? Some have said that this book is a book about labor, about work, but not just the work we go to the office to do, about everything we do in our lives, about raising children, about uh, eating food. All of the things we do are subsumed under this heading of work. And as we go through this, we'll be forced to ask, what do we gain from our work? What advantage do we get? And so we're going to reflect on people who grow rich but have no one to share their wealth with. Or people who have a lot of possessions but don't have the ability to enjoy the stuff they have. 
Or we'll see people who are wealthy but have no one to pass it on to. Or the ones they do pass on their wealth to are fools. What sense does that make? But what is meant by work, as we see, includes everything we do. Includes all we do in this life. It will be asked, how do we make sense of what we spend our time doing? By asking this question about our work, the preacher is tipping his hand about his own understanding of what a human being is, of what human nature is. He shows us that he believes the Genesis account of human beings, that God created us, that he made us to work. He placed man in the garden and he gave the man and the woman jobs. We were made in God's image to be workers. I think you can go further and say we were made in God's image to be workers and find meaning in that work. And that meaning is tied up with the worship of God. So whether that work was toiling in the, in the garden and raising up fruits and vegetables or naming the animals or having children, that was work that God ordained for human beings. And in that work, human beings found their purpose as they obeyed and worshipped God. So it's God who made us. It's God who made us with this desire to find meaning in our lives. Later in the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher will tell us that God has put eternity into our hearts. But what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes is that the preacher not only believes in the Genesis teaching about God's creation of human beings as workers, but he also believes in man's fall into sin. He believes in the, the curse that came upon creation through man's sin. And so we see that fallen human beings still work. And we even see that that work can be fruitful under the sun. But we also know that that work comes by the sweat of our brow. As we work, we confront the thorns and thistles of the earth. As we bear children, it's painful. As we work, we spend our lives toiling away. Those lives end in death. Our work comes to an end. It's this reality that the preacher confronts us with. What gain is there for all that work? All that hard work? We work. We die. Another generation rises up. They work and they die. So it has been and so it will be. Does any of it make sense? That's how this book starts off. And it sets the stage for this poem in verses 4 through 11. This poem is the first big argument for the preacher's tagline, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So let's read verses 4 through 11 and see the preacher's answer to his own question, what do we gain from all that we do under the sun? Read with me starting in verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. 
The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Whatever has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. This poem begins in verses 4 through 7 with observations about the endless cycles of time and nature. Generations come and go. The earth continues on, but with no apparent end or purpose. The sun rises and sets each day only to do it again the next day. The wind goes round and round without end. It almost sounds like a children's book. Now, we might want to interject and say to the preacher or to the summarizer, you're really looking at this the wrong way. You should be thankful that the sun rises each day. Right? When you confess in the scriptures, God's mercies are new every morning. Be thankful for that wind, that cool breeze on a hot, humid day. Be thankful that God hasn't judged the earth yet, that it continues on, that it hasn't come to a fiery end. Now, that's solid biblical and wise counsel, but it's also not the point of Ecclesiastes. The point here is to consider the world on its own terms, life under the sun, in some ways without reference to God's grace. I don't believe the preacher is is portraying a purely secular mindset for us, but he is asking us to consider, can you make meaning apart from God? Can you make sense of the world apart from God? What sense can the world make of itself? He's showing us here that the cycles of nature seem pointless in and of themselves. And as he'll say a little later in the book, the dead know nothing. You can't feel that cool breeze when you're six feet under. This point about the cycles of nature comes to a head with what we see about the streams and the sea. The streams run to the sea, but the sea is never filled. It's pointless. What sense does that make? The sea is presented as this body that has eternal thirst and is never filled. And that transitions to what we see about human beings. We are always consuming, but never satisfied. Look at verse 8. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Craig Bartholomew argues that this is the main crux of the poem, this lack of satisfaction. There is no ultimate filling or satisfaction in this world. All things are weariness. The things that should enliven us ultimately end up deadening us. I think you probably heard both John and I often refer to these, this theme in the scriptures about how idolatry makes us blind, deaf, and dumb. So Psalm 135, verses 15 through 18 says this, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. 
That point is repeated throughout the scriptures in the Psalms and Prophets. We see that worshiping false gods makes us like them, blind, deaf, and dumb. I wonder if the author of Ecclesiastes is giving us another vantage point on this same phenomenon. Our idols lead us in search of new things to see and hear, but these pursuits turn us into mute and weary zombies. They don't quench our thirst for meaning. They can't save us. Idolatry kills us because it leads us to look for the waters of life in a world that can't satisfy. But we go on groping after it. Go on looking in the very place where there is no life-giving water. In the words of Jeremiah, we have forsaken God as the fountain of living water, and we've dug for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. This suggests that the problem is not mainly in the world and its cyclical patterns. The problem is in us as we look for ultimate satisfaction in the things of this world, as we try to define ourselves and create our own meaning, our hearts are pointed in the wrong place. Our hearts are pointed in the things of this world, but these things can't satisfy us. We will never be satisfied or filled as we search in the world for meaning. I wonder, do you admit this about yourself? Do you agree with the preacher and the scriptures? You know, a big part of repentance, of, of following Jesus, is admitting that our idols are lying to us. That the things in this world that we're tempted to put our hope in, that they're making false promises. It's admitting that our idols are lying to us, and it's admitting that we've loved things, and we've chased after things that can't satisfy us. If you're wondering what it means to, to be a Christian or you want to start following Jesus, here's a place to start. Confess to God that you've been chasing after the wrong things, things that can't satisfy you. Ask for his forgiveness and look to him to satisfy you. This problem with seeing and hearing that the author points out not only refers to our desires and our appetites, but our knowledge. In the rest of the book, the preacher is going to tell us many times about things that he's seen, but that he cannot understand. We see here that our wisdom and our understanding are limited. Now this especially confronts us as modern people. Because we're tempted to think that we can master the world through our knowledge of it. That we can explain everything. That there's a scientific or a technological solution to every problem. I listened to an interview this week with a guy who believes that he has found a way to slow down hurricanes by creating this huge pump in the ocean with a big garbage bag that will somehow make the waters at the surface cooler and slow down hurricanes. Now, it sounds fascinating, but it's pretty ambitious, right? To believe you can control the weather. And no one's tried it. As much of a blessing as science and technology are for us, and we have to admit they are, we don't want to go back and live in a time before antibiotics or air conditioning. The preacher shows us that we can't put our hope in those things. We can't put our hope in our own knowledge. Our own knowledge will never fulfill the promise it makes to us. 
Because science cannot solve or explain everything. It cannot answer life's deepest questions. We especially need to hear that right now when we've been told over and over again. We need to follow the science. But there's a lot of wisdom needed to know how to apply the science. So the preacher confronts us with the truth that our knowledge can't save us and that we are not as powerful over our world as we'd like to think. He shows us that we are powerless to stop the march of time. There's no technological solution that will enable us to transcend our own limits as human beings. And none of us can transcend our own mortality. As much as we might like to think we can. So in verses 9 and 10 we see what has been will be. What has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. Now this may be an especially hard place for us to agree with the preacher, but there's nothing new. I mean, what would the preacher say if he saw an airplane flying through the sky? What would he say if he could walk into a building and experience air conditioning? I mean, what would he say if he'd been healed from a disease that would have killed him if not for modern medicine. You know, those things are new, right? They have a huge impact on the way human beings live and think of ourselves. But here's what I think the preacher would say if he could see these things. He'd say, 21st century people are comfortable and they live long lives full of every kind of convenience. Ancient people lived their few days in miserable conditions, but the end of them both is the same. They die, and in a few years, they're forgotten. This, too, is vanity. Same old story. There's nothing new. Death renders every life senseless. What has been will be, and we are powerless to change the course of the world or our own lives. The final indignity is a function of our short memories which means that everyone is finally forgotten. Verse 11 says, There is no remembrance of the former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. In a congregation like ours, I think there are many of us who understand the importance and value of studying history. Right? We have lots of kids here who go to classical schools where you're all about studying history. And we, as, as your pastors, have tried to feed you lots of history with our confessions of faith, right? We recited a confession of faith that's 500 years old. We see the importance of history. We know that we can learn things from the past, and we especially can learn things from Christian brothers and sisters of the past. But we have to admit it takes deliberate effort to do this. And there's a lot that we fail to remember or can never recover. How many of you, if I asked you after the service, and now, now it's not fair because I've already told you to prepare, but if I asked you, tell me the name of your great-great-grandfather. Could you tell me his first and last name? Some of us can, but I don't think I could. We can't remember those things. We've, we've already forgotten people that were related to us only a few generations before. Their lives are lost. The preacher's point stands. There's no remembrance of the former things. 
And this, I think, is even more true today than it was in previous generations, because today we have many folks in our society who would argue that history is only a record of past oppressions. They say we not only need to forget, but they explicitly reject the former things. They would say that forgetting the past is the only morally right choice, because now we know better. Don't read those books. We want to be on the right side of history. But the preacher's main point is not about the value of history. The main point is that all will be forgotten. Even generations to come. We know that you might even be canceled a few short years from now for holding views today that seem progressive. We cannot put our hope in being remembered. We can't put our hope even in the potential the future holds out. As I said, this poem in verses 4 through 11 summarizes the preacher's argument for the book's tagline. Vanity of vanities, all is vanities. His argument is the kind that attempts to sort of overwhelm us with data. So he says, look at the endless cycle of nature. Look at your own foolish desires. Consider how little you know. Reflect on how powerless you are to change things. And remember that you and your children will be just like past generations, forgotten. It's hard to refute the preacher. What evidence would you mount to say that there is some advantage to all the toil that we do in the world? What's the point? How do we find it? Well, there's not much in these first 11 verses that points us to any kind of answer. There are points along the way that the preacher will remind us to look at God's gifts. And the book ends by calling us to fear God and keep his commandments. But in these first 11 verses, we don't get any of those insights. There's not much let up from the relentless argument that all is vanity. But I do think that the opening verses give us some hint. Because the preacher is introduced as the son of David the king of Jerusalem, the, the king in Jerusalem, the king of Israel. Just reflect with me for a moment about how this identity of the preacher pierces through the senselessness that his poem has shown us. So the poem began by showing us the pointlessness of nature's cycles. They come and go and repeat forever. But remember who the king of Israel was, the son of David was. The, to be a son of David and a king of Israel was to be someone who had a special relationship with God, a covenant relationship that God established with David and David's sons. So this king of Israel is in relationship to the one who made the earth. That's what it means to be the king of Israel. And the sons of David were promised that they would be sons of God himself. They have a fellowship with God and this God is not the one who's like them below nature and subject to the, the cycles of nature, but he made it. He transcends these cycles. He's not bound by the rhythms of nature, by the waters that flow into the sea and never fill it. He's above those things. And then the poem leads us to reflect on the corruption of our appetites and the limits of our knowledge. But God is revealed in scriptures as the God of forgiveness. Right? That's David's own story. He was one forgiven by God, who knew the mercy of God's forgiveness when he had pursued his lustful appetites, 
and been forgiven. God offers forgiveness for those who who turn away from their blind, deaf, and dumb idols to worship him. God is revealed as the fountain of living waters that we can trust in to satisfy our thirst. What's more, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So in knowing God, we're not bound to the limits of what we can see with our eyes or hear with our ears. God's Spirit teaches us through his word. The world is pierced by God's revelation. The poem also reminds us that there's nothing new under the sun and that we're powerless to change the course of our lives. What has been will be, right? But again, the the king of Israel has a relationship with the one who's made all things. And what's more, God promises his old covenant people that he's going to do a new thing. He's going to establish a new covenant with his people through the blood of his son. So there's nothing new under the sun, but there is something new that comes down from heaven, from God himself. This new thing comes when God himself takes on flesh to dwell among us. Finally, the poem tells us that all will be forgotten. But the king's very identity is an exception to this, right? He's connected to David, and David was connected to Abraham. This king has been promised that he is also part of a glorious future. One of his descendants will sit on the throne forever. All things may be forgotten by people, but God doesn't forget his promises. And God doesn't forget his people. So we may ask then, if all those things are true, then why this book? Why did this book need to be written? Why include this seemingly pessimistic meditation in the Bible? How can this be a way of wisdom? One answer to that is that God knows how easily deceived we are. We think we can find meaning in life apart from him. That we can find the solutions to our own problems within ourselves or within this world. You could argue that the whole modern experiment is trying to do that. Trying to create a meaning for life apart from God. We find it all too easy to delude ourselves, even we Christians, and to believe that we can create our own sort of paradise, our own heaven on earth. But the author of Ecclesiastes is pointing out to us that the creation itself is is full of flashing neon signs that say, don't look for your hope here. But we ignore the signs. So we need this book because the preacher, he's, he's turning up the brightness of those signs. He's making them flash in really annoying ways. It's one of those fire alarms that pierces your ears. He knows we need to remember that death renders our lives senseless. That's what the preacher wants to show us. So we should ask ourselves as we read this, as we confront this, in what ways have I been trying to make this earth a paradise? Is my hope in something new happening under the sun? Is it in the future? Is it in my own knowledge and abilities? Is my hope in just having enjoyable times and pleasure in this life? These questions are especially helpful today if you're a young person here. Your life probably looks like it's full of potential. 
and it very well may be. You're looking forward to things happening, to milestones, to being able to drive, to going to college, to living on your own. There may be many good gifts that God has for you in this life. But the preacher wants you to know that those good gifts, they can't hold the weight of your life. You will get those gifts and you'll still be looking for meaning. And not only will you get those gifts, but some hard things will come too if they haven't come already. And one day your life will come to an end. You will not live forever. What will it all have been for? What will give that life meaning? If you've lived for this life only, you'll know for certain vanity of vanities. All of it was vain. The pain and discomfort we feel right now, the the senselessness that we face, is meant to direct us outside of ourselves and outside of this world. You see, in Christ, we see the man who experienced the senselessness of this life more than anyone else. We've already read in Romans 8 how the Father did not spare his Son. The Father did not spare his Son from enduring this senseless world. After all, Jesus was the righteous Son of God, the ultimate Son of David, the heir to these great promises we've talked about. But he was delivered over to wicked men. He was called the king of the Jews only as a form of mockery. His life was exchanged for a criminal. What sense does that make? He suffered as one cut off from the people of God, as one who had no past and no future. He suffered under the curse of the law. What sense does that make? Those who follow Christ should expect that our lives may they may follow a similar path. But in Christ, we see how this senseless life can make sense. Because in Christ, we see death defeated. In Christ, God broke into creation. And Paul has already told us in Romans 8 that that creation was subjected to futility. But Christ overcomes that futility through his resurrection from the dead. And this is good news, not just for the creation, but it's for us. Because by faith in Christ, we have hope in the midst of a hopeless world. See, Christ leads us out of the prison of earth's endless cycles. He opens our blind eyes. He gives us new desire. He forgives us of the sin that would ultimately condemn us. Christ gives us hope. But the scriptures are clear that as long as we live in this world, on this side of Jesus' second coming, this hope requires patience. Paul describes it as a waiting with groaning. Many of us feel that groaning right now. We look forward to the redemption of our bodies because right now we live in a world marked by the futility of sin and death. But there is a hope. It's a hope in Christ, which makes it a sure hope. He is alive. He has conquered death. He has conquered that thing which makes our lives senseless. Is he your hope? The only way out of the senselessness of this world 
is through repentance of sin and faith in Christ. The preacher wants us to know the vanity of this life. He wants to pile on the examples so that we can't go on deluding ourselves in our false hopes. We know deep down that not all is vanity. God has put that sense in our hearts. We know that there's something more. And if we understand the preacher's message, we will cry out to the one who made us and can save us. What has been will be unless we are rescued by Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray for ears to hear this message for myself and for my brothers and sisters and friends who are here. I pray especially for the young people here, the children and teenagers and the people who are starting off their lives, that they would understand that they too are finite, that as many hopes as they have, that they wouldn't let those things delude them or confuse them, but they would look to you. Help us, all of us, to live in the knowledge that our lives will one day come to an end on this earth. Help us to put our hope in Christ. Father, I'm convicted that this should make us people of prayer. Because in praying, we get to call out to you, the one who is over all things, and entrust ourselves to you. Father, help us to treat prayer, as John Piper says, as a wartime walkie-talkie, and not as the phone to room service. Father, we need your help. Open our blind eyes. Settle our hope on Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.